Welcome back to the Counterpunch Podcast, a weekly Cracked Rackets production. Alongside my co-host and partner in podcast crime, Archit Suresh, I'm Richard Mai, and we're delving into all things professional tennis tonight. Archit, how you doing? Well, Richard, I mean, I'm doing fantastic, but at the same time, I am quite upset given the fact that I haven't seen your face in what's been a week. But you know oh, what? I'm ready, to talk, I'm ready to talk some US Open. I'm ready to talk some end of the year stuff. Let's get into it. And there's so much to cover. Um, we'll go through everything US Open, all of our thoughts, because of course, you guys care so much about that. And also how our drafts are doing. Big picture. But let's start with the small picture. You want to start with the women's or the men's? I'll let you pick, as always. Let's let's start with the women's. Okay. Coco Goff is a Grand Slam champion. How nice is it that we get to say that sentence? I didn't, you know. I, I, first, for starters, I'm glad that we both said in the right direction a few well, months ago now um, that Coco Goff would win a slam before Jesse Pagula, if we remember that yeah. discussion. But I will say, I think... If I'm not mistaken, I think I said that I'd give her another year, right? But I think we said like about 2025. I believe I also was said about that, as yes. early as we expected. Um, I think there's so many things that we could not have expected, and a lot of growth that we could not have expected. I think the one thing that I didn't expect that would have been wonderful to know, however many months ago that was, was the hiring of BG. Um, but there's there's so many things that have changed. Um, but what a deserved win. What a great tournament for Coco. And yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you go. Yeah. I, f- first of all, what a fantastic summer for Coco Goff. Yeah. Uh, DC champion, Cincinnati champion, US Open champion. And to imagine that any of this could have been possible after that Wimbledon round one loss against Sonia Kennan, unfathomable, to be honest. And I don't think... I don't think I have ever been down on Coco Goff. I've n- I don't think I personally I've just never been stocked down on Coco Goff's potential as a player and as a person. That Wimbledon round one loss made me hesitate a little bit. I was still stuck up, but it, I hesitated a little bit. And boy, did she prove us wrong with flying colors. And obviously, you know, she had her whole thing of addressing her haters and the doubters once she won the 2023 U.S. Open. Wow, it feels weird to say that that tournament's over now. But just for the fact that this tournament has felt like such a long time coming, but also it couldn't, It like Coco Goff is 19 years old, right? So... To be saying, to even have the immense amount of expectations that she had on her shoulders from such a young age is remarkable. And she's handled that with such class and consistency and with the utmost professionalism on the court and off the court that you can't help but feel positive about the direction that she's gone in. And just what a deserved win for her. I mean, incredible turnaround against Arena Sabalenka, just showing off every bit of skill that she possesses on the tennis court. So, obviously, congrats to her and her fans. No, a big, big week all around for both finalists. Um, Coke obviously getting her first slam title um, at 19, making her the first American teenager to win a Grand Slam on the women's side uh, since Serena Williams uh, back in, I believe, what was 99? Um when Serena won the U.S. Open at 19, I think, was the mark, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
please don't crucify me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but for Sabalenka, um, a new world number one ranking, uh, much deserved after the year that she's had. Um, probably, I mean, screw the word probably. This has been the best year um, in her career for sure. Uh, so let's talk about Sabalenka a little bit. Um, some clear yeah. frustration after the match. Um, for those who did not see the video, Sabalenka in the locker room decided to crack her racket. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, positive outlook for Sabalenka, in my opinion. If you're in Sabalenka's camp, there's so many positives to take out of this tournament. To make two slam finals in a year. And two slam semifinals yeah. that she probably should have won. It's that, no, it's it's nothing to kind of brush off. Everybody loses. There's there's only one winner, and so there's only so much you can do. Coco pl- would just play better on on Saturday, and you just can't argue with it. She played phenomenal. It was probably some of the best tennis that we've seen out of her, and so yeah, I mean someone's yeah. so it's 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 the tough reality of sports. Someone's got to lose, and. There are so many positives that could be drawn from these two weeks for Sabalenka's team. Yeah, and I th- I think what, I, especially what I will take away from this year as a whole from Sabalenka is the consistency that she showed week to week, and especially at the slams where she re- wins the Australian Open in a tough final, loses a tight semifinal match at Roland Garros and Wimbledon, and then comes back and becomes a finalist and clinches world number one for the very first time in her career. This match very like for about a set, it felt like it could have been the Sabalenka show and it, and she just has that, that power and just the raw ability to take a match out of anybody's hands. And yeah, maybe if Coco was playing up against someone who didn't make as many loose errors as Sabalenka does, Maybe it's a different story, but the fact of the matter is that is what got Sabalenka to this point, and that is her game. So, and she's gonna live and die by that, and as she should, because it's clearly given her the results that you know she would have expected of herself this year. But I think you can point to the fact that Sabalenka is just she's she's up the level, right? And she's proven that she is currently the best player in the world. Now, long term, I'm sure many people will still say, "Okay, Iga Swiatek is still a far better talent than Irina Sabalenka and has already won four slams by the age of 22, and Coco Gauff is already a slam champion at the age of 19, so there is still time for all of this and we have multiple generational talents on tour right now." But at the same time, you can't deny that what Irina Sabalenka has done this year is downright phenomenal. But to play the devil's advocate to, like, the people that you were kind of mentioning, not to your point, Archer, but to, like, those types of doubters, Novak Djokovic has proven to us and the rest of the world that age is genuinely just a number. And we'll get into it more later on, but if I'm not mistaken, is is this the oldest slam champion in the Open era? I believe so. Um, but no, I mean, you never know how long a player can go for. You had Roger and Serena play into into 40 years old, which was, you know, people thought that that was unbelievable. And, you know, that now Novak wins a slam at 36. And you doesn't know show any signs of slowing go. down. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, 24 slams at 36 years old and he still wants more. It's just you never know how long a player can go. And I'm sure there's obviously the conversation of 
whether on the women's tour they want to go longer or not, you know, having kids and, you know, settling down. It's a different question on, on every, you know, player's timeline. Um, but I think just overall we've been shown time and time again that age is not a limit. It's just a number. And players can go for however long their body permits them to. Or even you their know, mind to be like, exactly. look at Ash Barty, for example, 26 years old and retired. And obviously the point that I'm not trying, the point I'm, I wasn't trying to make was that, oh, Sabalenka has limited time compared to someone like Sviantek yeah. or Goff, but more so that this wasn't the rapid teenage prodigy kind of showing that we saw from people like Sviantek and Goff, but it was a steady climb to get to the point where she was and there were many ups and downs. I've long been a believer in Arena Sabalenka's game, but the fact the fact of the matter is is maybe this came at a later time than people would have expected, but what what she's clearly shown is resilience, especially after the loss of her father, who we know was such an important figure in her life and her career. And, you know, all credit to her for accomplishing those dreams that they set out. And I think what's most important is recognizing the fact that this year as a whole is a win for Sabalenka, regardless of if she won the U.S. Open or not, regardless of how she fares the rest of the year and if she clinches world number one, year-end world number one, excuse me. But, you know, I just think it's time that we appreciate what we have while we have it. And though Arena Sabalenka maybe wasn't as dominant in the back ends of the slams as people would expect from the generational talents of Serena Williams, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer. She is still a damn good player and still won a slam, reached the final of another, got to world number one, and semied at two other events, along with all of her tour-level success at the rest of the year. So really, I just can't see how you can be negative on Arena Sabalenka's year. Yeah, and I think to kind of add on, I think... Everything happens at the right time for a person, and I think – I agree with you. I was never a doubter of Sabalenka's talent and her ability. You can doubt the mental, though, as much – as many of us did, and we pointed it out when she won the Australian Open. The big improvement was her mental stability and her ability to kind of just hunker down and get to work. Everything comes at the right time, and maybe it was a later start than a Sviantek or a Goff, but it was the right time because at the beginning of the year, she came in, was much more mentally stable, mentally sound, stronger, and it showed. Yeah, and maybe she needed to get through last year with all the struggles that she had. When you think about the second serves and the double faulting. Yeah, you think about all the errors. Maybe she needed to get through that in order to get to the place that she is right now mentally. And so, cr- first of all, credit to her for recognizing the need to get in the toolbox and just start working on her second serve just as technique-wise, but also understanding that she needed to figure things out mentally and 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 it it is very hard to do that and for a lot of players it doesn't happen like that we certainly see it plenty of times where 
some players can't figure it out mentally and that's no shame to them because it is a hard thing to do at the end of the day it is professional sport and no matter how much you battle yourself there's still someone else on the other side of the court but for Irina Sabalenka to overcome those demons and also reach the level that she has with her game is just a testament to her dedication and her hard work so I'm very pro Coco Golf, also very pro Arena Sabalenka, and also very pro Iga Sviantek. Absolutely. But moving outside of those three big names, some very, uh, let's say, surprising, maybe, semi-quarterfinalists um, that deserve so much praise for their performance um, this tournament as well. Uh, we'll start with Yelena Osipenko. All right, next, Serana Kirstea. Wow. Who did We're... really, really great. Um, wow. No, okay. this is, I'd like, to, I'd like to clarify one thing. I'd like to ca- clarify one thing. Regardless of who she had beaten, it is a noted fact that I am not the biggest fan of Ostapenko's personality and her character. I don't care who she beat. I'm just frustrated that she got this far. Now, opinions aside, she really did play amazingly. It was very refreshing to see her play very well. She's had like this kind of roller coaster trajectory, this up and downness to her kind of res- like I don't know if there's a better word than results, but no, this is probably some of the best tennis we've seen from her in a while. Um, we know how good she is, a uh, big power hitter. We I remember that 2017 French Open win was just dominance and she played so well and she you know things kind of fell off and now and you know they've been going up and down up and down but she's a great player and you know what are you laughing at (laughs) well i to be honest i am just laughing at your opening statement on yelena ostapenko (laughs) personal biases aside i i think we can establish is great player and great and f- phenomenal great. player, great yeah. talent, and maybe her personality does bring something different to the game that other. She people... needs an ego check. If you if we want to speak personality and character, she needs an ego check. But yeah, well, fair, fair enough. But why don't we <laughs> head over to the game where we can clearly establish? No, hundred percent. Yeah, I I think just the pattern that we've seen from the year. Yeah. I know. Asapenko always is going to be a player that has her ups and downs and is just going to back herself regardless of whether she's making balls in the court or not. But I think what she's shown over the course of this year has been fairly consistent. Like, I'm I'm not for her relative to what yeah. we have normally seen from her. <laughs> relative to every season since 2017. Yeah. 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 Relative <laughs> to that, I believe that Asapenko's had a phenomenal year and actually has had consistent results and pretty clearly has shown that no matter what, if she is playing her best tennis, she's not going to lose a match. It, it, now, it is just a matter well, of... No, uh, I, I'm I'm being dead serious because if Ostapenko is redlining and just finding every line and is able to mow, mow down every single player on the WTA Tour with her sheer power and pace and just her ball striking, then there's n- really not much she can do. She came out flat against Coco Goff. And, I agree. And, yeah. and that's a valid concern because obviously, you know, there was, there was the whole thing about the lack of rest after a really tough match against Iga Sviantek. And some, some could argue that that played a really huge part in how she performed against Goff and ultimately the result. But I do want to point out that what are, are we just gonna i know that left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth but yeah. are we just gonna breeze past the level that she showed against Iga Swiatek? exactly 
I think, but I think frankly, no yeah. one but Yelena Ostapenko does that to Ike Shriantek. But I think if you're going to talk about the Coco Goff situation, I think it's less so the lack of rest, but more so the fact that she was told something different to what it ended up being. Mm. And I think a player at Ostapenko's caliber, I think this is what she hinted, like, meant, like, talked about during the press conference was the fact that. If she had known it was going to be a day session match, she, she probably would have prepared, prepared differently. Exactly. exactly. She could have been prepared much better than being told you're going to get the night session and then being told last minute, hey, you're playing at 3 p.m. So exactly. in the I heat of think, the day yeah. against Coco Goff, who is a hometown favorite. Yeah. Right. So I, if that match is played at night, maybe it's a different story. Right. But yes. I. Me personally, I still think Coco comes out of that match. Maybe that's yes. recency bias, given what we've seen through for throughout from her from the rest it's, of the week. I don't, I don't think it is because I just think her caliber yeah. has been Coco over the but last again, few yeah. weeks. I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm seeing. Uh, let's say since Washington, especially since Cincinnati, has been a completely different caliber than we've seen before. Um, there has been so much improvement, and you can pick out little minute things. But just generally, it's been so much better. And regardless of what time of day that match is being played, I'm still picking Coco. And I think the caliber of play added on to her ability to feed off of a home crowd and everything, everything was in her favor, not just the scheduling. And maybe it wouldn't have been as much of a steamroll as it was. 0-2 in just over an hour. Yeah. I mean, clearly the level wasn't very high, yes. Given that she just beat the world number one, but still, I think well, it the still would have been... World, the then world number one, yes. yes. I think it still would have been straight sets. Maybe not the steam role that it was, but Coco has just been on a different level this past however many days, and there was no stopping the train that was rolling through New York. Like, it's... Yeah. And and that's and she that's fair, else. and that's yeah. fair. I, obviously, what we're saying is all purely speculation, given the yes. fact that, you know, first of all, we're arguing about the fact that a match being played at night would have a somewhat different result. Like four hours is a difference to tennis players. Every it's very is, true. And, I don't think and just the conditions think, as well. Yeah, I don't think the generic, the average Joe Schmoff, the street tennis fan, understands how. Little minute differences matter to athletes, right? Yeah, you're especially at this level, two when pounds and yeah, you're talking two pounds and string level, tension. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about the 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 gauge of a string. You're talking about the smallest little details, which or tennis ball eat, they're using, or even something like eating thirty minutes before instead of thirty minutes later. That kind of exactly. stuff matters at this level, where details are so much a part of the process and so. Exactly so imperative to how these athletes go about their day and their routine. And so, yeah, maybe things are different in that way. Especially when you're at the top of the game at the end of week two of a slam. Where the level is razor thin margins, right? Between these players. So, yeah, that that is something we want to address. Up and down tournament for Yelena Ostapenko, as it often always is. But (laughs) what I will say is... What I will say is I am very much looking forward to the next time she shows that level. And yeah. and every single time I will question if she can continue it. And I will bet against her not continuing it until she does. But I really am hoping that she does because that tennis would be fantastic to watch. I think to kind of close things out on Ostapenko, I just think that the difficulty with 
kind of following her trend is that her game is so heavily reliant on her being on her day. And I've talked about this on the men's side where there are some players where it's just if they're hitting their shots and it's just like not a very um, what's what's even the word like consistent like con- I forgot the word. It's the ability to play the same maintainable. Metronomic, it's yeah, yeah. Not a maintainable style of play across sustainable. a period of time. Sustainable. sustainable. Thank you. There we go. A- across a period of time. I think we need and to get you an SAT vocab again, Richard. <sighs> that was a moment of silence and a heavy breath out for that one. But no, I and I <laughs> spoke about it regarding players like Karatsev and Shapovalov, and I think Ostapenko fits into that category, but the difference is the confidence factor. You mentioned it. She will back herself regardless of if she's hitting every ball in or every ball out. She will continue to back herself. And it's respectable and it's commendable how much faith and belief she has in herself and in her own game. And it helps a lot of the time when you see matches like the one against Iga. That confidence shows and she's hitting her spots and making her marks and yeah. all of that good stuff. Because With that I th- said, the difficulty yeah. is just that it's just it's not. It is very hard to maintain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's fair. And sometimes she does catch lightning in a bottle. And one day she could go on another two-week run like she did at Roland Garros in 2017. But yeah. the fact of the matter is it's not a likely scenario. But boy, would it be fun if it was. <laughs> so, yeah, moving on. Because I think we've we've spoken about Sapenko for a while now. Uh, Serana Kirstea had a phenomenal week, uh, as did Kin Wen Zhang. I think what's really fun about these two is that you're showing two kind of different ends of the spectrum. You're looking at a player who has tons of experience and has been on tour for a while in someone like Serana Kirstea, and then you're looking at another young gun who has been who has received a lot of eyes on her this year in Kinwen Zhang. And this is just a great result for both of them. Serana Kirstea's had a great year. I think this is her is his second or third time in the second week of a slam. It's really great for her. Um but yeah, I mean, in the interest of time, the player that I think you and I would both like to talk about was the one that made the semifinals in Maddie Keys. Yeah. Which, and again, just, yeah. One game away from beating Arena Sabalenka in straight sets after a bagel so, set. I was so mad because what I wouldn't have given to seen an all-American slam final, like... This is nothing against Sabalenka. I think she's a phenomenal player. I think she's great. I just would have loved to seen an all-American final because that's such a rarity. And it would have been so much fun to watch, um, especially because Maddie Keys had been there before. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I think Maddie Keys had like has just really shown her credentials yeah. these and, past and, two weeks. And to me, quietly... This I mean this has been one of the best Madison Keys performances yeah. in a in a, like in a single season that we've seen in a while, but she's put together a really really good year with really good consistency. Round of sixteen at Wimbledon, reaching the semifinals here, getting so close to winning against Sabalenka. I'm trying to think, what was her Australian Open result? Um, the United Cup was really good for her. No matter yeah. how much or how little you'd like to take that into account, the United Cup is the United Cup, and it and she did phenomenally yeah. there. I mean, United Cup winning the title in Eastbourne after beating Coco Goff and absolutely Dar- and Dasha Kasakina. You know, second round it, at the French Open isn't great, but at twenty years old, 
I think the the main thing to get out of this is that at 28 years old, people um, just doubted the her ability to do it again in terms of making a deep run into slam. Everybody was saying, you know, that that 20 what was that 2017 um, loss to Sloan was her moment, and it, yeah, and, and that was the pinnacle of done. her career. Exactly. But, I, but I think what she has proved is, you know, there's still some gas in the tank, right? And she, it's not like she's old at 28, right? Especially with the level of longevity we see in today's game with all these different athletes playing into their late 30s, right? So there's, clear, there's clearly a chance for Madison Keys to be able to take this forward. Obviously, maybe uh, to a much lesser extent, we haven't seen yeah. this. Like the, with Yelena Ostapenko, we, we don't really see the week-to-week consistency, yeah. Madison Keys can sometimes be up and down in a similar fashion, obviously not to the level that Ostapenko is, but still, you can still see that when Madison Keys is on, she has the gear to beat anybody in the world. Yeah. There, but there, but there clearly are some questions. I, I hate to discuss stuff, stuff like the non-quantifiable, like the it factor or being able to, you know, be be him or be her that people our age would say but but yeah like i there there needs to be a discussion about is that a viable thing for madison keys because and david kane said this on i can't remember when but he said it rather recently journalistic editor for tennis channel or tennis.com but I just thought it was it was interesting to hear his thoughts on Madison Keys as a whole because how long we've known about Madison Keys and did the slam run really teach us anything new about her? Probably not. But at the same time, I think it did also remind us that Madison Keys playing at her best and playing at this level is still a force to be reckoned with and I hope to see that level consistently and maybe maybe she just needs more bites at the apple and one will break her way for her to be able to get to another slam final or even win one one day but overall it's still very very impressive i'm stock up on madison keys so let me give a recap on the highlights of keys's uh 2023 season uh she went five and zero at the united cup won all five of her matches at the i believe women's like two singles essentially was like the equivalent of like a women's two singles, uh, playing under Jesse Pagula, who played the one for the women's singles. Um, at the Australian Open, she lost in the third round. At the French, she lost in the second round. Um, then, let's see, obviously she won Eastbourne, as you said, uh, quarterfinals at Wimbledon, and the semifinals at the U.S. Um, I really enjoyed her match against Sabalenka because those were two of the heaviest hitters on the women's tour and what I would have what I wouldn't have given to have watched that absolute dogfight in person just every shot with so much power I've I've had the you know yeah. the, the lucky, weight of shot on the, display yeah, yeah. I've the had weight the of shot on display be, yeah, of being able to watch Maddie Keys in person and holy crap she's good just, I don't think you understand. Like, this is one of the players that I say, like, News, the TV news flash. Do justice. News flash. Madison Keys is good. Wow. Yeah. No, but just in terms of, like, I don't think the TV, like, this is one of the players that I kind of refer to, uh, and I always think of when I go to the idea of, like, the TV doesn't do justice to how heavy they hit the ball, how hard it is. And 
Maddie Key's just when you watch on TV, it's one thing, but when you watch it in real life, I'm not getting that ball back. Neither is probably majority of amateur players in the country. Like, it's no, so good. no, ama- no amateur tennis like player is going to get Madison Keys's ball back. Let's be real, because professional players who dedicate their entire lives to do it yeah. are going to struggle. So, I think you need to be at least like you need to be like college, like solid college level player to get that this back. Is, this is which true. is which in in all fairness is why college tennis is usually where like hitting partners are dug up from, but. That's 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 besides the point. Well, speaking of college was, tennis, yeah. speaking of college tennis, I, I think it, I think it's time we have this discussion. But we've clearly seen a level of there. There's just a level of a respect that the college tennis game has now gotten in the mainstream media, whether it's whether somebody is just saying it flippantly. Oh, you know, Ben Shelton played under his dad at Florida or exactly. Peyton Stearns went to Texas and she was a national champion. But there is just, and you can clearly see it, but there is a level of players rising to the top of the game who have now established college tennis as a viable pathway to professional tennis. And why don't we start with Peyton Stearns and the, go ahead. I was going to say, I'd like to give Novak some credit for shouting out college tennis and really, I mean, the thing is like, it's one thing to see it happen, but I think a lot of people, like, in all due respect, overvalue how players speak, and when and when and you know what they say and when they say it. And I think because of that, I you know I have a lot of respect for Novak for giving college tennis the credit that it deserves as being a viable pathway to becoming a professional player. Um, I didn't know what we could expect from the women's college players this year um, just because, you, honestly, you, you just never know, especially just in college tennis as a, as a whole. And I just think the only player that we had expectations for would have been someone like a Ben Shell and who's we've, who we've seen him play at this level before, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, well, and again, I, yeah, I made I think, this argument on our last pod, yeah. but I think – but before the U.S. Open, what I had said was what Peyton Stearns has done this year is somewhat more impressive than what Ben Shelton did this year. Agreed. Because Ben Agreed. is in the top 20 off the back of two huge runs, albeit they are phenomenal runs that you can't argue with because reaching the quarters and semis at the two hardcourt slams of the year, downright ridiculous on your first full year as a professional tennis player. But what Peyton Stearns has done is just building week by week by week into the top 50. I think now Emma Navarro also inside the top 50. Yeah. So those players continuing to succeed, we see the level of people like Danielle Collins, Jennifer Brady, who you know have been holding it down for quite a while, not unlike you know the Stevie Johnsons and the John Isners and the well John Isner coming full circle. But you know, it, I think I think it is rather fitting that even though John Isner is retired and Kevin Anderson may be taking a step out of the game and isn't as prominent as he maybe once was. I think it's still incredibly important to recognize the number of players we saw with college tennis ties going deep into these slams. Rinky Hijikata of UNC, former All-American. Borna Goyo, former, former Wake Forest finalist in the NCAA tournament. All these players, whether you're looking at Ben Shelton or Chris Eubanks, former Georgia Tech standout, it's just the level of these players in college is, has just shown that it is a viable pathway and 
it's not going to stop anytime soon. Let's be real. Because now if you're looking at it, the level of college tennis has been higher and higher. And there's just, there's just such a surplus of top level players still playing in college who are inevitably going to go and have pro careers. Yeah. So props to them and just, and and to your point, I think what we've seen more and more that's so impressive is the ability of college players to hang with professional players. In the past, there was kind of this rift in between the level of a college player and a pro player where if you threw a college player onto the pro scene and like let them play a few tournaments by the end, there's still a gap in level. What we've seen more and more is that gap closing. And it's and I think the proof is in the Shelton Tiafo match. I think the proof, the biggest proof for me, is in the Peyton Stearns Von Drusova match, Absolutely. because I think it's important to look at those losses. It's important to look at the losses because there's so much you can learn from a loss, and I think that that match, even though it didn't go Peyton's way, was really great for her. Because you can go back and you can learn from it and learn what to improve to get to the point. Remembering that, that the woman across the net from her had just won Wimbledon. There's obviously an imbalance here because you've got a Grand Slam champion. And on the other side, a player who agreed and straight and right to your point has shown great consistency this year. But she hasn't even played a full year on tour yet. So exactly. there's so much to learn, but at the same time, I mean, Payton put up one hell of a fight. And exactly. it's and so commendable what she did over that first over that first week and in that match against Von Drusova. And there's yeah. so many positives to take out and so many lessons to learn. This could like realistically, I'd like to say the word only, but even though that's limiting, this could only go up for her, honestly. Absolutely. And again, this is just something that I want to point out. It's not just a viable pathway to being an elite singles player, but also doubles. as a doubles player and just the sheer number. The The last five Grand Slam men's doubles titles have come from Americans. Or, sorry, not Americans. Col- college players. From college <laughs> tennis players. Well, but or players with college tennis ties, right? Yes. And whether you look at the Rom Salisbury three-peat at the U.S. Open now, both who have played at college, but I want to run through the results at US o- at the U.S. Open from players with college tennis ties. Um, credit to John Parsons for these, this information, but men's singles, semifinal run from Ben Shelton, women's singles, fourth round from Peyton Stearns, men's doubles, title for Raman Salisbury, women's doubles, title for Rutliff, mixed doubles, titles for Danilina, girls' singles, Title for Catherine Huey, who is expected to play at Stanford. The first, I think, sta- the first, I think, U.S. Open junior champion to play college tennis in quite some time. I can't even remember when the last one was. But and then, and then you look at boys singles, the finalist Lerner Tien. So, which I've just, already, which we we've things. both already sung our our praises for Lerner. So yeah, we'll spare you listeners the Lerner Tien talk, but it just it's it just proof that, that this is a real. Yeah. real thing and a real option and you can and see it, it in the junior game good yeah. talent yes and you can even see it in the junior game that this isn't going anywhere anytime soon so i guess what we're trying to say is tune into more cracked racket stuff yes yeah. this is where but you I, find out who the next elite player is going to be 
I also think that there is a big misconception by many people, not everybody, but many people, that think that college tennis will just translate. No, it's it doesn't translate automatically. It's once in, it's very much so once in a while where you get a Peyton Stearns or a Ben Shelton that does really well in their first season on tour. It takes some time. It does. And it takes some learning curves. So I know, I mean, I had seen people were disappointed with, you know, the results for, for example, Ethan Quinn. But I mean, this was what? this Was this not like his first main drop or like something like that? It was, it's this is still his first early main on. draw of a slam. First exactly. main draw of a slam. It's and- very early on for him and there's time to grow and no player was amazing the first time they played in a slam. Yeah. Or at least as a rarity. Let, give give them time to build like any other player, like you would for any other player. It's just a matter of these people are in a bit more of a spotlight than, you know, your average youngster starting out just because they play on the college circuit. So yeah. give them time to grow and you never know. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've talked enough college tennis for now, but... Why don't we move over to the men's side? Let's go over. We could stay on with Ben Shelton and, and talk about that match against Novak, which is great. We absolutely, I mean, we absolutely could, but I've got three big storylines that I, I've, we've got three big storylines that I want to talk. I want to talk Djokovic. I want to talk yep. some Medvedev and Alcaraz stuff. And then I want to talk American men's tennis. Thank you. So, God. <laughs> so you, you go wherever you want to, but we'll, we'll start with that. Fine. Can can I can I just quickly say um, I I know I like half doubled back on myself last last time, but did I not say that I felt the best about Ben Shelton? Did I not say it? Did I not say it? Like it's very true. It's very fair. I'll give you that. I just think what we've seen from him, this, you know, in this in this tournament, has shows really great upside for his potential. What I don't want people to do is think that this means immediate success because we need to remember his clay court and grass court season well which you know was at not the same the time mo- at the same time yeah. i will argue that it was his first time leaving the country yes. and the first time yes. he had played on red clay yes. and grass so yes I, I just think it's not a shock that his best results have come on the surface that he's the most comfortable on with best of five, giving him the leeway to find his game and go through those peaks yeah. and valleys that he finds himself in, in a best of five set match. So with regards to Ben, everything from this year is already a bonus. Yeah. What I would like to see for the, over the course of the rest of the year and the start of next year is maybe a bit more week-to-week consistency. Agreed. I would, that's exactly I don't want, where I was going to go with it. That's the next step in his yeah. development because Ben is still so raw of a talent that you there's still so many more ways that he can improve, and he is nowhere near the player that he could be. Let's be real. Just looking at the technique on the forehand and the shot selection and just the backhand, just the, the ability to absorb pace from the baseline, just... All of that can continue to improve. The The way he serves is phenomenal, but there's even ways that Brian Shelton has talked about getting Ben to maybe look at it as a baseball pitcher, right? And you're trying to pitch a perfect game. And that includes mixing up with variety, whether that's mixing in heavy kick serves or placing your serves a lot better, which was clearly something that you saw that Ben needed to do if he wanted to really trouble Novak. 
I mean, he may have gotten under Novak's skin, but on the court, he he what he was doing as a tennis player wasn't really bothering Novak. But I think Ben would still come away with that match as a win because he came in with the right mentality. Because that's what you need to do against Novak Djokovic. You can't go in there with your head down and saying, he's the greatest of all time, I've got no shot. Ben truly believed that he could win that match, and you saw it with how disappointed he was afterwards. So he's got the right mindset, and I think Brian Shelton will help him. Just, I just think it's going to take some time. So what I would like to see is some week-to-week consistency, and maybe if that means sacrificing some of the deep runs that we saw for you know a few more third round and fourth rounds, I'd take that. Because that, to me, shows a level of maturity and development from him that I think would be very, very much a good sign of what we can expect from him in the future. This, this result is going to reap great benefits for him for the next 12 months, looking at a better ranking position, more opportunities. And he really needs to take those opportunities. Like you said, grow as a player, get consistent week to week results there is clear talent. There is clear talent here. But like every, you know, young player, you can't just rely and sit back and enjoy it. There needs to be work done, there needs to be growth. He's not perfect. He's damn good, but he's not perfect. Obviously, he, you know, it needs to grow. But I think if we want to end it on a positive note, there's some really really great potential in Ben Shelton and I genuinely I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and say it I think and I I just I don't want to be too early on this I think Ben Shelton is the next American man to win a slam I don't think it comes for a while but I think it's a matter of staying healthy and staying disciplined which you know Brian's gonna keep him to we've seen and and continuing and continuing to improve is the most exactly. important part. Exactly. And That's what I meant by maturity, is that he's not yeah. going to sit back and be like, oh, I made the semifinals of the U.S. Open. I'm good. I'm chilling. I don't need to do anything more. I'm, I'm you know, like, I don't want to see complacency. Depend on the fact that he will continue to grow and continue to improve. And, and by, all, by all, yeah, by all indications, what we've seen is that he will continue to improve and continue to do so. I don't know. I, I mean, I I've texted, think, I've texted you this before. I also think yeah. that Ben will be the person to break the drought. Yeah. But I don't think it'll be for a while, but I think he's the one that breaks the drought because you need to look at every other option we've had. We have. And a few months ago, I said it was Sebi Corda. You, you know what? Why don't, why don't we I have, have this, yet to be? Yeah. I've yet to be proven, but this is this, this carries as into the American, you yeah, know, why don't, why don't we have this talk now? Yeah. I think the thing about it for me is this. I think when Ben hits his peak, Novak will be out of the question. And I think will, we'll be. <sighs> will Novak I, I, ever you know be what? out Honestly, of the question? But continue. Please, yes. if I see a 45 year old Novak Djokovic, no. Literally, please end it, please. Like, I think genuinely, I. Well, I think what we're going to be seeing is a fun. Okay, my hope is that a peak Ben Shelton could join an Alcaraz Sinner rivalry. There's a world where it happens. It's I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but there's a world where it happens again, dependent on the lack of a lack of complacency. Yeah. Well, you're getting, you're getting more than a little bit ahead of yourself. But what I fear 
happening that I that I feel like we've seen in American tennis players before is they make a deep run and they're like, oh, I'm chilling. I'm good. Like, you know, I'm so no, I don't, there needs I don't, to be I don't know. more growth I, and improvement. But to be honest, I don't know if that's what we've seen from this generation of players. No, because not if, this generation. But I'm saying, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. Not, I'm not gonna not name say names. Any names yeah. But I'm saying in the past with American players, there's a certain period of time where I feel like what we saw was a deep run, and then it's like, I'm good. I don't well, need I've, to. You know, I'm I fine. Like I'm helps, clearly, I'm clearly good enough to make these deep runs, so I don't need to do anything. Well, I think what helps with this current generation is the fact that they have so many different names who are pushing each Absolutely. other. And they talk about this all the time, the healthy Absolutely. competition that they have, whether it's T- Taylor Fritz winning Indian Wells. And to me, that is the thing that started all of this was that Taylor yes. Fritz Indian Wells run. Yes, you could see the signs beforehand, but once Taylor won Indian Wells and started making his top 10 runs and Francis Tiafo making the semifinals of the U.S. Open... Tommy Paul making the semifinals of the Australian Open. And you see Taylor having his consistent results on the tour. Yep. You see Francis and Tommy now starting to back that up all inside the top 15. Then you see guys like Chris Eubanks having these massive yep. runs. Then you see Ben Shelton. And I I still maintain it to this day. Sebi Corda has the upside to be right there with Ben. And yes. It's just not this year. This just hasn't been his year. Well, it's been a Maybe wash just next because year of will health. Be. Exactly. I think and who, the reason I think, why... I, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you go first. Well, I think what's most important with Corda is just the health, right? He just yeah. hasn't been able to stay healthy. What we saw in the month of January, I think that's replicable yeah. over the course of a full season if he stays healthy. We're going to see. Only time will tell. I think the fun thing for me about Sebi Corda is that if you're talking about a sustainable and maintainable game, Sebi has that. He has a game that he can maintain over a period of time. It's, you know, not every player has that. Um, I just think I'm going to leave it to a Shelton Corda 1-2 of, like, who's going to be the man to break the drought. For me, what that comes down to is, okay, let, let me start by prefacing this. We don't know when a player's peak is until hindsight becomes 2020. Okay, we'll start there. I fear that Tiafo and Fritz's peak is either here or coming within the next two seasons. With that well, said, well, it should. I don't think. Now... Exactly. Yeah. Novak. Sorry. Novak is like. Novak yeah, well, is no, well, sorry is Novak. To, sorry to interrupt. And Novak but, can yeah. beat. Novak can beat a peak Tiafo, a peak Fritz. We know this. Yeah. And to, and the to same be, goes for to like be an quite Alvarez. honest. Yeah. To be quite honest. I'm coming out of this U.S. Open thrilled with the level that we've seen from American tennis. But Taylor Fritz will be disappointed with how his U.S. Open ended because of the performance he put out against Novak Djokovic. Tommy Paul and Francis Tiafoe will also be very disappointed that Ben Shelton beat them. And to me, if they heard us saying that Ben Shelton and Sebastian Corda would be the ones to break the American droughts, <laughs> they would be absolutely pissed at us. And all for the right reasons because yes. they are the guys who have they're the guys who have made it to the top 15 they've shown the yes. consistent week to week success and they have brought american tennis back to the place that it is thank you that's all i was going to say they i think when you look at the okay american tennis as many other things can be grouped into eras okay you have 
like the night the like late eighties, nineties, early two thousands of like the Agassi samples. That was great. Then you have this the middle point where it was like the Andy Roddick, the James Blake, the and then moving into the end of that kind of the John Isner, Marty Fish, Jack Sox, Sam Query type. I think Fritz and Tiafo and Tommy Paul to group the three together have cre- have started a new era and I like it because they haven't fallen into that back category. They've created a new respect for American tennis and a new style of American tennis that is much more successful. I hate to put it that way, but let's be real successful. Um, but I think, well, I think part of it is the fact that they, they all came up together and have continued to drive each other to that level of success, whether that's, and it is, it's a very healthy competition, but it is competition. Everyone sees the, it happens almost every week on the pro tour where there's an American making a deep run and every other American is sitting there being like, I could be that guy. Yep. And to be honest, and they're pushing each other and it's great. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what you want to see. And I just, I just want to make one more point on the whole discourse about who's the next slam winner. Yep. It does not matter because ultimately all these players have won in life and in just in how they have brought American tennis back to relevance. When you look at Fritz, when you look at Tiafo, when you look at Paul, maybe they'll feel like they are leaving some things off the table for the rest of their careers. But I think they're, they will... I, I think the fact that they are so upset that, that they aren't world number one, they truly believe that if they played their best tennis, they would be world number one. And that is what you want to see. I hate to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. I think that everything for these for this like group, this age group of like the Tiafo Fritz is just unfortunate timing. They started out at a point where you still had the big 3 running the show. It was kind of towards the tail end. I'm not I'm I'm not saying their peak, but I'm saying the start of their kind of real rise and like real growth to a point where they could be considered top 50 real real contenders for not grand slam titles but for titles and now that roger and rafa are back are now are now out of the question slowly well roger for sure but rafa slowly but unfortunately inevitably novak has somehow like i feel like novak has regained a steam that like I don't even know. It, it's not to say that he ever went down in level, but to say I feel like we've see, we're seeing a Novak with a brand new passion and a brand new kind of fire up in his in his butt, you know. But I think now that you have Roger and Rafa kind of stepping back, Novak is not unbeatable. So you know, no matter how much he may Alca- seem like it, yes. Now you have Alcaraz to be the next nuisance. For, for players like a Fritz or a Tiafo, and, which and is going to be hard for them to get past him. But, he, so but now here's my thing. Here's my thing. This is the last thing I was going to say. I hate to be that guy. I just think that it takes unfortunate circumstances for Fritz and Tiafo to really have their moment. And I'm talking like a 2020 U.S. Open type of situation. Like, But, he, but here's is, here is my thing, right? When you And this is not just on the Americans as a whole. This is about this generation of tennis. Outside of maybe Daniil Medvedev, would you say that that generation, the initial next gen, has is already starting to be surpassed? Yep. 
because you have Carlos Alcaraz, you have Yannick Sinner, you have Holger Runa, right? And but, now you've got a whole new crop in like the Ben Shelton and the who else would you Sebi would you Korda group with that? The Sebi Corda, but I want a non-American to group into that. Like, I, I what Arthur Fee? Um, yeah. All Could you say how old is Musetti? He's 22, yeah. 21. That's probably I, I would call that well, like Mus- the Musetti is kinda. yeah Musetti is still part he's of the tw- Alcaraz Sinner Runa yeah he's twenty one yeah Musetti's still part of the Alcaraz Sinner Runa category right yeah. he still he still is next gen as we like to say yes but this next the gen next, is currently yeah. then this next gen is starting to become the now gen the next gen has just had a hotter start to their careers and an earlier start to their careers and it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about like an Iga and a Coco where you have these great results as a, as like 20 years old, you know, Alcaraz won his first slam at what? 2021. Like it's, or no, 2022 U S open. Um, this time last year, which he He was was 19, 21 years. He was 19, 19. He was, yeah, he's not 21 yet. Thank you. I'm I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I just can't process the fact that Alcaraz is God. We're sitting here behind Mike's and he has two slams. God damn. Um, but no, it goes back to I think we're seeing this overall on both tours where players are having earlier starts to their careers. And not to say everybody is because not every 19 year old is winning a Grand Slam title. I mean, we're sitting behind microphones right now. But you're seeing a lot more young players compared to that earlier generation having those hotter starts to their careers, those earlier starts. Uh, Ego won her first slam title, I think. Am I crazy to say she was 19? I think she might. Mu- she's. Oh, yeah, she oh would have been, she been 19. She's 22 she now. Tw- 19. 22 Iga, Coco, and, Sa- and Alcaraz all won their first slam titles at 19. Yeah. You weren't seeing that in that past generation. Yeah, and like, I, again, part just, of that part of that was the dominance of the big three, right? And so plus four. Serena, if we're talking about the women's plus yeah, Serena, yeah. Serena, the big four, Wawrinka, that generation did make things quite difficult. But at the same time, they are in danger of being surpassed right now. But what I will say is, the, Carlos Alcaraz isn't the big three, right? No, because. Because there is only one guy who so far seems like a generational talent of that caliber. So far, there's only one guy. It does. It, there will be chances. Like yes, not to say that Alcaraz couldn't be become a dominant force in the game. Not to say that guys like Sinner and Holger Runa could get up there. But there is the possibility that these guys can still win slams, and there will still be opportunities. But Did this is ma- where I bring in my point of I think. This is why this brings back the whole idea. Like, Alcaraz is beatable. Everybody is beatable. And I agree with the, with this generation. It's one guy. With that said, I don't – I think that by the time Novak retires, the players like Fritz and Tiafo will have been past their peak. Well, they may be, they may, they'll probably be late prime, right? Because you look at someone yes. like Taylor Fritz, 25 years old. You look at Casper Rude, 24. Tsitsipas is 25. But if Novak Magdalene still keeps going for three more years, then they're going to be at almost 30 years old. Exactly. But, the, but that again, that's not old by tennis standards. Yes, they, they'll True. probably be late prime and exiting the primes of their careers. And maybe and Alcaraz will probably be close to entering his prime, which is scary. Yeah, exactly. Just to think about. 
But you're what looking I will say at, a, at Swift transitioning where it's Novak will retire, Carlos will likely be in a prime. Now you're risking the fact that well, who's, other who's players this, yeah. from that generation will likely be in their prime. Yeah, and what if you look like in let's three be years? Real, what, yeah, let's be real. What is likely to happen is that Carlos Alcaraz will be the best player in the world when Novak Djokovic retires, right? Because there are already arguments about that now. If you think about the level that he progresses with, and just I know. It seems like Novak will never regress as a player and he can go for as long as he wants. He recently even stated, I plan to play until the 2028 Olympics in LA, which is ridiculous, first of all. But if if that does happen, you still would bet that Alcaraz will be a better player than he is at that time. And these guys will all be late prime. So there will be a window is all I'm trying to say. With that being It'll said, be a small window, but I think by the t- when Novak retires, the other thing you risk, we're talking about Alcaraz because he is, you know, that generational talent. But with that said, by the time Novak retires, not only will Alcaraz likely be in his prime, but so will a good majority of that generation. Your yeah, Holger, Holger Rune, Rune, your Yannick, Yannick Sinner. Sinner. Yeah. I think you're going to be looking at the early prime of a Ben Shelton. Like... Give him three years, Alcaraz may be pretty dominant, but so might some of the other players in that generation. And exactly. I think what the worry is for the generation that is at risk here is will the the prime of like a Yannick Sinner and like all these like non top players not to say sorry, sorry, that was a bad way of phrasing it, but non like I let's say non big three, because I'm thinking of like well, tier one is cre- is clearly Djokovic, Alcaraz, yes. Medvedev. Thank you. Like, They're not like non-tier the tier two, one like the, players. Like the like the like the half a knock or one knock down. That pr- their prime will likely be still better than the past generation's prime. Like I think, and you know, I, I, like the question will be, for example, will a prime would a prime Yannick Sinner be? better than the prime i don't know sasha zverev right like but (laughs) yeah well we can we can speculate all we want but that's the real question and i think that's what is at risk here when you're looking at this kind of we called it technically the lost gen last last time and that's kind of what it's turning out to be yeah and that's very fair. Let's not even get into the whole lost gen of dimitrov nishikori chilich but i i hate to say but i think the one that disappoints me more is the end of the lost gen because there was so much promise in the like, and I'm talking about the Zverev team, um, Fritz. Well, um, again, rude generation. Like that, again, what I what I want to say that generation. Is they, what hold on, I, I do need to clarify. They are still the dominant force right now yes, in men's tennis, sure, and yeah. how, we are we are speculating like objectively. Yeah, it may seem like <laughs> as Carlos a whole, Al- as a whole, yes, as a whole, yes. Because because yeah. are you are you really trying to tell me that Casper Ruud and Stefano Tsitsipas might not be elite top ten players in three years? Sure, but here's my thing: so were so was like uh, Tomas Burdick and you know Chilich and Dimitrov there's got to be someone that fills here's the thing if you've got a dominant three at the top there's always got to be someone to fill spots number four through ten again that's and fair, I agree but with I, you they're going to be elite top ten players but the but I think what everybody's what's on the casual tennis fans mind is top ten players great will they be 
a Grand Slam champion caliber well, player. That's fair, but what I will say is not yeah. everyone can win Grand Slams, and if we're going to quantify, there's only four a year. <laughs> if we're if we're going to quantify a successful career as someone who won Grand Slams. Exactly. That's a hell of a lot of amazing tennis players who will never get the props that they deserve. There's so a why difference between successful career and then and then like a slam champion because there's so many great players that have not won a slam. Exactly. And there's there are world number ones who have never won slams. There are it's it's pretty yeah. clear to me that all of these I players I think will on the men's side there's only one that has not won a slam. Yeah. That's true. Um, is, is that am I wrong in saying that? Like, I think it's only Marcelo Rios. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, you you continue as I just as I just as I just yeah. look through. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, to be fair, if Sasha Zverev ever gets to world number one, I I'll I'll be the first to say I just don't think he has what it takes to win a slam. It's Marcelo Rios. Yeah, it's Marcelo Rios, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, and and that's fair. But what I will say is like. Daniil Medvedev is still tier one, and is he not yes. the leader of that generation? And let us he, also did he not just beat yeah. Carlos Alcaraz in the U.S. Open semifinal? And let us yes. also remind everyone that there are also players that have won slams but were never world number one. Stan Wawrinka, Juan, Martin, Juan, Juan Martin, Martin Del Potro, Potro. Marin Cilic. <laughs> Let's not forget. Dominic Team, and it even goes back further. Um, even guys like um, Michael Chang never got to world number one. Gaston Gaudio, yeah. Like okay. there's, there's yeah. like the thing is, <laughs> I, but even, I pulled that. But I pulled that one for like yeah. on purpose. Exactly. But, but no, real there are great players. Guys, I think yeah. the big thing that we need to remember is that a, is that as much as in, as as fun as the Grand Slam conversation is, uh, we like everybody needs to always understand that a the winning a slam does not mean the mark of a phenomenal of like. It, you don't have to win a slam to have a phenomenal career, and this translates to other sports. You know, Ronaldo doesn't have a doesn't have a World Cup. Like it trans, like it's not. There's there's obviously that like. What I mean, what's I mean? How do you? I I don't even know how to speak right now. Like, there's obviously like that pinnacle, that one title that everybody wants. Every sport has that one thing that they always want. And, and it's fair. And they're, a they're, great well, player is not marked by the fact that they have to win one. Exactly. And they're they're clearly Hall of Fame players in the NBA and the NFL if they don't win at finals or if exactly. they don't win the Super Bowl. Like it's it's all part of the process, and it doesn't define what a great career is. And I think we need to keep that in mind, especially with the last two generations, because not everybody can be the big three. Not everybody can be Andy Murray or Stan Wawrinka. So. I, honestly, this podcast has just gone off the rails. But why don't why don't we switch gears over to Novak Djokovic winning a twenty fourth Grand Slam? Um, I I'm gonna go out there and I'll be the guy to say it. I'm happy that it happened because I'm 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 so happy to stop talking about Margaret Court. Fair enough. I, you know, yeah. like I I'm glad that someone was able to because the thing is it was so awkward to keep saying like. Oh, like, uh, you know, but Margaret, you know, oh, Novak has the most slams, but Margaret Court, if you don't count the, you know, if you're not talking about, like, so if you're speaking non-open like, era, open slams, era yes. yeah, just let's put it to rest. I think when you look statistically, no matter if you like him or if you don't, statistically speaking, there is a greatest of all time, point blank, and the period. Well, I, I think, I think here's, I think here's what we need to talk about. 
the there's no more greatest of all time debate in the men's race if you're looking at it quantitatively and with numbers yes. and statistics. Statistically, yes. Right? There will be people who make the the qualitative arguments like, oh, who's more fun to watch or who plays with a sure. certain level of and tenacity who, and or who had, grace. Like, the better, like, and, you know, off-court, on-court, whatever. There will always be that debate. And who maybe had... And there will always be people who say, oh, this player at their best is still better than Novak at his best, right? And we all know who the two players we're referencing are. And yes, we've talked about Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer as a big three for so long in their careers. And those three will always be tied together. But let's let this be Novak Djokovic's moment. And let's let's let it be a reminder that statistically, he is already the greatest player of all time. And now we we could maybe get into the talks of is he the greatest male athlete of all time? Is he is in that status now? He is in that group, and so are Nadal and Federer. But to me, you can't be the greatest athlete of all time if you're not the greatest player of your sport. And it's me a fair personally, point. yeah, me personally, I'm a fan of other sports as I am a huge fan of tennis. Same, but right, like. I, I, me personally, I don't think that Novak Djokovic is the greatest athlete of all time, but I'm willing to have that discussion. Yeah. So, I, that's first of all, that's the definition we're ha- that's the discussion we're having. The other discussion we're having is greatest tennis player of all time, and yes, Margaret Court can be in this discussion if she wants to or whatever. But I'm not taking it seriously because half of those slams don't count to Thank me. Thank you. But I think if you're talk if you're going to talk about the greatest tennis player of all time. We, it's, I feel like people always kind of just refer back to slam titles, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. I think you have to keep in, in mind not only slam titles, overall titles, world number one. I'll say weeks of, say weeks of world number one. Consistency, like staying within that top ten range over time. Um, I don't know. Well, I th- I think the there are other players off, and there and like I think there are all, all, I think there are also other things that you could talk about. I there's obviously this whole thing with legacy and yes. just you know what players may leave as a personality. But I think if you want to talk about Novak Djokovic's on court legacy, he has shaped what the modern day tennis player is. Yes, and he has revolutionized the game to a point where because no matter how you want to look at it, not everybody, the the majority of players on today's tour, they don't play like Roger Federer, they don't play like Rafael Nadal, they play like Novak Djokovic because the technique and the way he goes about the game is so precise and so well rehearsed and technically sound that no matter what, he is always going to be competitive on the court. And that's the game style you see. And I also want to make that same point with Serena Williams. And yeah. that brings me to my point that if you want to talk greatest of all time, or at least I'm going to say greatest of my lifetime, because I have not been around for a lot of the yeah. champions of the past. And to me, it's impossibly hard to compare eras. Yes. But if, if you want to talk greatest of this generation, it's Djokovic and it's Serena. And that's the discussion we're having. Agreed. I'm down to have that discussion. Agreed. To me, if you're talking about great... Okay, the thing is, I think what also is really difficult in comparing eras, you can easily compare, or like somewhat easily compare, the big three, because they played at a similar... They 
they all like experienced a decent amount of their success within the same time period this this time frame of the late 2000s early 2010s if you want to compare Novak Djokovic to Pete Sampras probably the greatest in his generation on the men's tour you are comparing literally you are literally comparing apples to oranges because it was a different game Every player that plays success that really that plays really successfully and, ha- and sees a lot of su- uh, success, they often shape what t- how tennis is played during that time period. To me, there are so many different players that could be kept in a like a conversation of of greatest player because there's how they played in their era. If you're speaking holistically to tennis as a whole, I don't think that you that there is an argument. Further than five names. Serena, Novak, Roger, Rafa, Steffi. I don't think there's an argument for anyone else. Those five players are on a tier of their own. This is coming from someone that growing up absolutely loved Pete Sampras, even though he had retired before I was born. Like... I love Pete Sampras, but I don't. I think that that's a whole different conversation. If you want to call well, him the greatest of all time, you need to change the ending of that and say greatest of his era, of his time. Exactly, and to which me, which I will not argue with. I will not argue with the fact that Pete Sampras was the greatest of me, his time. And to me, these are the discussions that we should be having as sports fans because it is so impossibly hard to compare eras, just because. These sport players evolves. all grow up. Sport evolves. These players all grow up under different conditions. You can't just say, "Oh, if this player grew up in this era, or if this, or if LeBron played in Michael Jordan's era, he would be the greatest of all time because they're more physical." Blah blah blah. You yeah. can't do that, right? I think. So, yeah, I say we just look at it at this time. Novak is the greatest men's player of all time, in my opinion, and Serena is the greatest women's player of this time, in my opinion. I think what's really interesting when you look at the eras, though, when you look at those like greatest player of their time, you see, especially on the men's side, you see the evolution of the game. You like if you start even with like the Borg, McEnroe, Connors, and then you kind of move into like there's this kind of like gray area in between where I would put like a Mats Vlander in there. And you can see the technique evolve. And when you get more specific into like a Pete Sampras, you see the Eastern grip forehand. That translated into Roger. But Roger kind of took the backhand and took it a step further. Now you go into Rafa where Rafa goes in the complete 180 of that and goes very spin heavy. Then you have – and you can see the evolution. And I think that's what's cool about it. Because yeah. Rafa comes after Roger. Then Novak comes after Rafa. Rafa and Novak starts the whole semi-Western. And, like, both Rafa and Novak started the heavier emphasis on a two-handed backhand. There, you can and also, see and, it grow. Yeah. And more so just the shift from playing in the front court and serve and volley being the predominant style to now offensive baseline games and just the ability of rallying from the back that these players have compared to then. And that's now the predominant game style that we see. So I'm, I am excited to see what's next, right? I'm excited to see what the next change would be. Why don't we leave that conversation there where it is? And why don't we give Daniil Medvedev some love and then let's get out of here because we have got an hour. (laughs) Um, this has been, this is a great tournament for Daniil. We're gonna we're gonna skip 
the final, okay? That everybody has their off day. And um, Archit knows why, but I was very frustrated when uh, Daniil lost. Um, Archit knows why. Um, but, yeah, I just think, listen, there's so many positives to take out. The win over Alcaraz is huge for him and huge for his confidence. Uh, you were looking at a point where f- many fans were saying, like, Daniil is the 1.5 tier. And that he's n- and there were people that were saying he's not at the same level as Alcaraz and Djokovic. It's this is this was proof that he is, and he can compete at that level, and he is that good, and you know he deserves his flowers. Here's what I'll say: Daniil Medvedev was one match away from single-handedly reviving the Player of the Year discussion, because if Daniil Medvedev wins that match, then you're looking at a year where Novak Djokovic wins two slams. Alcaraz wins one slam, and Medvedev wins a slam after beating Alcaraz and Djokovic back-to-back, right? That didn't happen, and to me, Novak Djokovic is the player of the year, regardless of the fact that he hasn't maybe had the tour success that Alcaraz and Medvedev have had. There will be discussions, of course there will be, because we as humans enjoy arguments. <laughs> but <laughs> what, I, what I will say... yeah. I think this really does put an exclamation point on the year that Daniil Medvedev has had because of the tour success. You look at the early season that he had where maybe the Australian Open didn't go the way he wanted, but you look at the success that he had at the Masters 1000s, winning a clay Masters 1000, going on that streak of tournaments that he had won on the hardcourt season in, say, the Middle East, and then moving over to Indian Wells in Miami, the success that he had there after a rough patch. And then backing that up with a semifinal at Wimbledon. Yes, that that tournament ended with a bit of a sour taste in his mouth after a loss to Alcaraz. But then coming to New York and reaching a final again and proving that the Grand Slam success can still be there for him. I think that that is ultimately what is the most important thing is that Daniil Medvedev has reinserted himself into Tier 1. And now there is a clear tier one, and I think there's also a clear T two in the men, tier two in the men's game, as there is in the women's game, and it's it's been a while since we've had that in both camps. So, I'm just I'm incredibly impressed with the level that Medvedev was able to pull off against Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah. I'm not ready to say that oh he's now going to win every matchup against Carlos Alcaraz after this, the same way that I wasn't ready to say that Alcaraz was going to beat Medvedev for the rest of his career, because the fact of the matter is they're both just too good of players. However, I do think that this doesn't t- change too much regards to that matchup. I still think Alcaraz will be will continue to be a tough matchup for Medvedev throughout the rest of the career, not saying that he can't beat him, and not saying that Medvedev can't beat Djokovic, right? But it, I think we've established that that's the tier one, and credits to Daniil Medvedev for reinserting himself into that. And we'll see how we can finish this year and start next year. Because to me, it, this can continue to be interesting. And I just I, I think it is really intriguing that we have someone from each generation in the top three, right? Because we have Carlos Alcaraz, who will likely finish his year-end number one, just because Djokovic isn't going to play that much throughout the rest of the year. But we have Carlos Alcaraz, who is you know the next gen. Right, we have Novak Djokovic, who is multiple generations of tennis players, and then we have Daniil Medvedev, who is you know, the current gen, right? And so, yeah. 
to me, that's the way you look at it. And whether that is a, I, I mean, I just, I don't even know where to go from here, but it's, it's great for the game. And in the interest of time, we're going to very quickly breeze through the draft. Um, because we're all on time constraints here. Um, I, okay. I think for starters, neither of us drafted Coco Goff. Um, I had probably the most success on the men's side, having both Novak and Ben Shelton. Um, Archit had Carlos and Musetti. Um, our lower picks did not do very great either. Um, I had Iga. Archit has Sabalenka. And our second picks. Uh, the thing is, on the women's side, only our first picks did. Listen, really I, thought, I think Kasakina's yeah. had a good year. No, no, I don't mean. I mean, I mean in terms of the U.S. Open, who had deep runs. I'll, I'll take you the fourth the, round. You had the women's semifinals, and I had the women's fourth round. I think it's just it's just been interesting. But I think big picture wise, how do we see you know these two wins kind of reflecting on the rest of the year, and how much hope do our draft teams have? <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I, th- I still think there's plenty of time. As we know, the tennis season never stops. Well, yeah. It's a never-ending calendar. We've got plenty of tennis to cover for the rest of the year and for the next year and year beyond. So, listen, I, I'm not going to panic, to be honest. I still think we're, I still think we're fine. I think, I think the rest of the season is going to be great, and I'm just excited to see how Novak and Coco can take these huge, huge, huge confidence boosts and just run with it, especially Coco, um, just because of the results that we've seen from her over the last three tournaments between Washington, Cincinnati, and the U.S. I'm just so interested to see how she takes this and runs with it. Yeah. Also, absolutely. to give point where it's due, we did mention the transfer over success from Cincinnati to the U- to the U.S., both winners of Cincinnati were the winners at the U.S. Open. Um, thus, when we come back to this conversation in a year, we can again emphasize how important it is to do well at Cincinnati. Yeah, and there's always the age-old argument of do you want to be peaking right before a slam or do you want to be peaking in the second week of a slam? All I know is I would be asking Novak Djokovic because the man has somehow found a way to perfect peaking during a slam. And that's what we hope to do with our coverage. Peak during the biggest events of the year. We hope we did that and we'll continue to do that for all of you. With that said, Richard, do we want to send this off? Yeah, with that said, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Counterpunch. Archit, I'll let you take us out. All right. Well, special thanks once again to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the day in, day, day in, day out job of editing he does here at Cracked Rackets. We really, truly couldn't do this without him. Reach out to us at, at Suresh Archit on Twitter, at Richard My 3 on Twitter. Yeah, there we go. Uh, I'm, I'm getting it, right? Reach out to us on Instagram. <laughs> I guess it's not called Twitter anymore, so I didn't get it, but reach out Don't to even. us on X. <laughs> Don't even. And Instagram, at Cracked Rackets on all socials, www.crackedrackets.com. Tune into our YouTube live streams. College season's on its way. Tune into all our different podcast networks for all the updated coverage that you may see. So with that said, that's us.